So this one, and then uh, the next one will be the end of uh, the Kings series. And this, this right here is the story of Josiah, the reformer king. And it's the one that when I say that my concern over America is that we'll have revivals, but the heart of the nation will not be shifted, this is why. This story right here. Because uh, Josiah's reforms, they were too late. And I believe the Lord told him that. I don't know if it was, if we'll read that or if it was in Chronicles. But even with all of the revival that he did, the Lord said it's too late, judgment was coming. So that's, that's where I'm at when it comes to our nation. And I feel like studying the kings has made it plain that we're definitely in need of, I would say, an Elijah anointing. Uh, you know, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the children to the fathers is where the focus needs to be. But uh, in uh, verses 1 through 2, we'll read just real quick. Actually, I'll probably go ahead and read um, to 3. No, I'm sorry. Then we'll flip over to 1 Kings 13, then we'll come back. But it says that uh, Josiah was 8 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosketh, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, this, um, yeah, this is the son of Ammon, who was the son of Manasseh, remember? So Manasseh is the one that uh, was the most wicked, and actually, I mean, if you, it's almost like a collective, it's like the one domino. You know, like there's a lot of dominoes, but it's the one domino that gets tipped over and then everything begins to fall, right? And so with this, uh, we got Hezekiah that showed all the treasures of Judah to Babylon. Isaiah prophesied that Babylon would be the nation that would come and take all of those things. Uh, then you've got um, Manasseh, who was the most wicked and idolatrous of all, and that's where the Lord's judgment came down as a final decree. Uh, even though he repented and was restored. And now we have uh, Ammon reign not very long, and now Josiah is going to reign, and he's going to follow after the way of David. But what's very fascinating about him is in 1 Kings chapter 13, remember the uh, unknown prophet that got eaten by the lion because he disobeyed the Lord? It says uh, in verse 1, and behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is a sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Now remember, uh, Jeroboam was the king of Samaria. So this prophetic word gave Josiah legal access to do work in Samaria, even, even though that was not his kingdom. Okay? Because he can't just go over and do whatever. I mean, the Bible has clear spheres and clear boundaries for ministers. 
And so, uh, and leaders, and so for him to go over to Samaria and tear down altars wouldn't be cool. But this word is saying that's what he'll do. And Josiah by name. The uh, uh, name Josiah means God supports and heals. Okay, so we've got a prophetic word. Um, I believe it was, let's see, Jeroboam, we're like hundreds of years past that. I think by the time Josiah was around, it was either 200 or 300 years later, which is fascinating. That was a long time. Okay, so and then back in 2 Kings 22, uh, 3 through 6, it says in the 18th year, so we've got 10 years later, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, I guess, uh, the secretary, <clears throat> excuse me, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought to the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, to the builders, and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked them, uh, asked from them for the money that is delivered to their hand, for they deal honestly. Okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry, he was 26. So uh, he wants to repair the house of the Lord, which is really neat because it's been in disrepair, plus... Uh, I think it, Ammon put all the idols back in there. And, you know, so this is a trigger. This decision to pay attention to the things of God and to repair the house of God is a trigger for his destiny. And uh, I was thinking in worship about a podcast me and Coach Greg did called The Bridge of Incidents. And what it is, I bet you heard it, uh, where you get to this place where you have to make like tough decisions so you have a bridge and you're looking at it and it looks like either decision is going to be jacked up but the decision you make can open the door of opportunity wherever there's a, a opposition or there's a you know it looks like one thing's ending whatever it looks like there's always um they call it ah seed of something return where you've got to view things accurately so that you can have the return or the opportunity that is hidden in the circumstance, right? So here we have this situation where Josiah, you know, he could have left the house the way it was, but his heart was for the Lord. And so he wanted to repair his house. That triggered, that decision triggered an opportunity and an answer probably to what exactly should I do as a king for my people? So then in verse 8, it says, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king, and he reported to him and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary said, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. 
And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and uh, Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asahiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Ju Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now, some have said, um, oh, and I need to bring this up for you guys. Some have said that he read the part that had his name in there, but it's my understanding that the book of the law would have been the first five books or the Torah. So it appears that what he read was the Torah, probably like Deuteronomy 28, you know what I'm and it's like, uh, oh. Okay, let me go over here and pull these up for you because I want you guys to see. Um, I found pictures of coins because the, the oh I don't know oh. Uh, probably I don't know where they were found but a lot of people try to say that these people didn't exist okay so let me go into okay so this one um each of these coins, and I thought I had named them, but they have the players. So, like, this one right here, Gedalia, the governor, these are called bullas. And this is from 587 B.C. This is Azariah that we just read about, the son of Hilkiah. And then this is Jezebel's. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think this one... Gosh, I can't remember. This one I thought was maybe Josiah's. Anyway, it, I just wanted to show you guys that you know, they have found a lot of evidence of these people uh, that lived during this time. In fact, any honest, you know, archaeologist will, you know, say that a lot the stories in the Bible are true and they keep being proven true in spite of what people try to say. Like even chariot wheels have been found in the Red Sea that date back to that time. Noah's Ark has been found on Mount Ararat uh, in Turkey. Um, so the, the stories are true and there's plenty of science and uh, is it geography or what's, whatever they say, rocks and stuff, ge geology. There's plenty of evidence, you know, of uh, the flood and the Bible and things like that. Now they've also found Bula for um, Ahiakam, the son of Shaphan. Um, now, he later served Jeremiah from the prophets and priests after his sermon in the temple. He went and served him. And then Nebuchadnezzar appointed his son, Gedaliah, as governor of Judah after Jerusalem's fall. And then on one of the bullas I showed you, fingerprints are actually visible on the edge, and they think that they might be Ahikam's. I don't know how to say his name. Uh, I couldn't find them in the picture, though. So anyway, it's just really neat to to see, you know, those those things. But Josiah, when he, you know, obviously looks at the word, he realizes they are very much in danger um, 
because they had violated the word. So he wants to get advice from prophets to see what to do, which that's uh, something that's important to understand about prophets. They definitely can foretell the future um, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, but they're also very strategic. They're strategists. And so it's important to recognize that they will seek the Lord and then they'll come up with a plan or come up with a strategy working with him in, uh, in that capacity. So in uh, verse 14 it says, So Hilkiah the priest, and let's just call him Ahai, and Atbor, and Shaphan, and Azariah went to Huldah the prophetess, <coughs> the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Pharos, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, and that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. So that's, it's kind of like a dual word. In other words, your nation is going to be destroyed but because of your heart it won't happen on your watch so they had a little bit more time to hopefully get people to repent to turn from the Lord or turn to the Lord but as far as a nation it's over and the reason why is their hearts have not changed with repeated warnings repeated conversation repeated instruction repeated uh, spankings repeated you know like the Lord just kept talking to them and they weren't listening, and there was a pattern of iniquity that set itself, embedded itself into that nation that would not stop. And the Lord knew it wouldn't. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what Josiah did. So, I mean, I, I think it would be very discouraging if I was Josiah. It's like, thanks, Lord, that I'm not going to see it. That's great. But I instead of him just sitting back and watching that happen, he went to work. And and that's neat. I like how he didn't just sit back and wait for his days to end. Now, Huldah's husband, so she's a prophetess, which I think is really neat. Um, Shalom, he was a palace employee. So he oversaw the wardrobe, uh, and probably of the king. And she was a recognized and respected prophetess for the king to go to her, for his, you know, servants to go to her and inquire. Um, so, you know, Josiah's heart moved God. He promised not to do it in his day. Uh, but he took action anyway. He didn't become passive, and I really like that. So in verses 1 through 3, 
It says, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and the people joined in that covenant. So he, like this wasn't, he just made a decision. He made a covenant with God and with people, which means that if he didn't keep his part of the covenant, what he, you know, the covenant itself with the animals and all that would happen to him. So he's serious. Now, what's fascinating to me is here you have this word 300 years ago. So even though the judgment came down on the nation, God prophesied a king because I don't know, like, was it for Judah's sake that he gave that prophecy? Was it to give a little bit of time so he didn't have to judge sooner? You know what I mean? Because if it wasn't for Josiah, the judgment would have been immediate. So he's very long-suffering, and he'll give people as much opportunity as possible to come into his realm and come into agreement with them. So I'm not sure, but just think, that word spoken by a prophet that got eaten by a lion has worked its way and interwoven its way through the story, and here we are at its fulfillment 300 uh, years later. It's just amazing. Okay. So on verse 4, it says, So we've got this covenant, the people have agreed. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out the temple of the Lord, out of the temple of the Lord, all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, the sun and the moon, and the constellations, and all the hosts of heavens. And he brought out uh, the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook, and beat it to dust, and cast it dust, upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. That's kind of like those people that molest children that are pastors and church leaders. Yeah. Or there, there's even been some, like up in Ohio, I think, where they arrested the church pastors because there was a child trafficking ring, a sex ring that they were doing. So this is kind of a similar deal, except it's male prostitutes. Uh, where the woman, women wove hangings for the Asherah, and he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba, Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, who were on once left, left at the gate of the city. Okay, finally, almost 400 years later, someone tore down the high places. Finally, 
Would we decide? Was he the first or is he the second king that did that? I can't remember if Hezekiah tore down the high places. I'd have to look back. Yeah, so finally, finally, we have someone, but it's too late. And the inroad of idolatry has taken uh, the hearts of the people like tentacles on an octopus or a jellyfish. It's like you can't get it off. Okay, so verse 9. I know we're doing a lot of reading, but to me the word speaks more than I need to. It says, however, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord of Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinman, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the king of Judah, kings of Judah, had dedicated to the son at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in his precincts, or in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down, broke in pieces, cast the dust of them into the brook Kedron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. So they all around Jerusalem. The entire nation uh, was full. Mm-hmm. Was well, even in the temple, though. And I find it interesting that he defiled the high places that were defiling. You know, I, I just he he's trying to, he's trying to stop the judgment of the Lord, and he's also trying to prevent the people from going back. You know, so even though they're worshiping all these gods, breaking God's laws, they're not going to break the law of being unclean by going where dead men's ashes are. That's the problem with religion. You know what I mean? It's like. You can not do one thing and yet you're being this entirely different person or doing these other things and thinking that's okay. But as long as you keep this law, as long as you keep this thing, you're okay, right? Or as long as you perform this way, you're good, but you can, you know, mistreat people and do, you know, like seal from the church's treasury or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like people will justify what they want to do because you always do what you really want to do, right? So he's trying to make it where, you know what, I'm going to get where y'all can't go there at all. And uh, so it's sad that Solomon's legacy is the Mount of Corruption. Because if anyone started it, it was Solomon. It wasn't Jeroboam. It wasn't any of them. Solomon did this. But he's not finished. So now, um, in verse 15... Okay, and I don't even, again, up to this point, I don't know if he's even read the word about him yet. I don't even know if he knows it exists. But it says, Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who came, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, 
And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled them according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. So, finally, someone goes after Jeroboam and what he did and the, the prophecy is fulfilled. I mean, this is, this is just great. I mean, it's like he's reversing the curse. You know, it kind of reminds me of Trump's presidency where he was reversing a lot of the stuff that the elite and the globalists had put in place. Unfortunately, we're seeing them put everything back, but it, it's, it's kind of like a rewind. Now, in verse 17, oh, here it is. He said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city said, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the city of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did it to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were, on, who were there on the altars and burned the human bones on them that he, then he returned to Jerusalem. That's crazy. Now let me read this again. Uh, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there. Um, wow, so I read that correct. He killed the priests. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Man. Okay. Removed all the shrines. And again, it's incredible because he's not even the king over Samaria. You know, at this point, that part of the country is overtaken by Assyria. So he, uh, he, but again, the prophetic word gave him, excuse me, authority. And he didn't even know it. So this right here. This is the epitome, this story is the epitome of following presence, not principles. He was just following the leading of God to do all of this, and he fulfilled the prophetic word in spite of himself. You know, in spite of not even knowing about it. So I love that. So it's not, uh, it's like the law of lift and the law of gravity. If you try to fulfill the law of gravity, Minus the law of lift, you're going to splat, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're going to hurt yourself, possibly others. So no one should just go around and be tearing down stuff in other people's jurisdictions, authorities, etc. But if the Holy Spirit tells you to, do it because you've got authority uh, to do so. All right, now, what a commendation for Josiah. The Passover, so if we go up to verses 21, let's look at this. The king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the king of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, 
Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and all the idols and the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Now the reason this is astounding is David didn't even keep the Passover. And, and God is saying he was, he trumped even David. Because no one, it says right here, no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, his soul, and his might. That's a huge compliment, right? So, and it makes you wonder, if they would have kept the Passover, would things have been different? It's kind of like, you know, one thing that I think is really important for believers to do is to ponder redemption realities. To regularly ponder what the Lord did for us. To read the story of His, uh, his you know, garden, uh, beating, crucifixion. To keep your heart centered on that. Because He is our Passover Lamb. And if we keep our heart centered on that, it keeps our heart tender toward Him. And it can also keep you humble. Because if you forget what Christ has done, and you begin to just think of yourself as all that in a bag of chips, you're in danger. But if you keep your heart centered, give me a tissue, my nose is right. Spent a lot of time outside this weekend with that dragon mane. But anyway, uh, it makes you wonder if they would have kept the Passover and, and kept what the Lord did and identified with that, would they be where they are? What, G? You had a thought. Well, sure there's a lot of idolatry going on. Well, I know that's what I'm saying. If they would have kept their focus on His deliverance and what He did for them in Egypt and kept the Passover, it makes you wonder if there wouldn't have been all of that. Just a could thought. Be, could be. Uh, now, in the uh, Passion, in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, it says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are retelling the story, proclaiming our Lord's death until He comes. And so that's why I think like if you, if you keep reminding yourself of the Lord's story, you know, it's hard to get in pride when you see that you didn't deserve it and He did it anyway. It's hard to be offended when you see that He... Uh, you know, forgave you of your sins. If you forget that, right? Or it's hard to think that you're the one doing the miracles when you know if it wasn't for Him, you wouldn't even be where you're at. You know, I'm just thinking that maybe that would have helped them. In uh, Luke 22, 14 through 26, and we're kind of taking a little detour here, but I think it's important. Uh, in the Passion, it says, When Jesus arrived at the upper room, He took His place at the table along with all the apostles. Then he told them, quote, I have longed with passion and desire to eat this Passover lamb with you before I endure my sufferings. I promise you that the next time we eat this, we will be together in the banquet of God's kingdom realm. So then he raised a cup, he gave thanks to God and said to them, take this and pass it on to another and drink. 
I promise you that the next time we drink this wine, we will be together in the feast of God's kingdom realm. Then he lifted a loaf, and after praying a prayer of thanksgiving to God, he gave each of his disciples a piece of bread, saying, This loaf is my body, which is now being offered to you. Always eat it to remember me. Now, I think part of what you're thinking too, G, correct me if I'm wrong, anything can become a ritual. You know, even the, the Passover, even uh, uh, communion, the key, right, is not the act, it's the remembrance. You know, that's the key. The, the outward cup and bread is just a reminder, like a trigger of pondering what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, right? So any ritual, any action, even reading your Bible or praying can become a ritual. It's the connection to presence that is most important. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, in the Passion, so remove every trace of your leaven of compromise with sin so that you might become new and pure again. For indeed, you are clean because Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. So now we can celebrate our continual feast, not with the old leaven, the yeast of wickedness or bitterness, but we will feast on the freshly baked bread of innocence and holiness. So Jesus is our Passover. Communion is our Passover. And we need to do it as often as we desire. You don't have to wait for a pastor or a priest or anybody like that. You can do it in your home. It's a reminder, but it's also a proclaimer. It's a now and it's a future. So it's important to remember all that the Lord has done for us or we'll forget and then drift away. And the problem with drifting away is you don't know how far you've drifted until you look up and all of a sudden you don't see land, you know, and you're in trouble. It's like getting into a, are they called rip currents? You know, you think you're safe, you're enjoying, you know, the ocean and all of a sudden, you know, you're in trouble here. So, but did I read? Yeah. So verse 9. Now this tells you why God was done as well. Go back to verse 9 in chapter 23. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. I mean, that, if you can't even get the leaders of the people of God to leave their, you know, their places and their comfort and come celebrate, they're eating unleavened bread. That, I mean, that's a huge sign to me. Uh, okay, now, so he, he's, he's basically, I don't know how long this has taken him. I'm sure it's taken him quite a ways. But in verse 26, it says, Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. Now this principle right here, <clears throat> I think it's important for people to understand that there's a point, okay, 
God is of His Word. If He says something, like Mike says, if I tell you it's Easter, paint those eggs. And it could be Christmas, but He's saying it's Easter, right? Same thing with God. If He says, I'm going to do this, if you guys don't straighten up, it is a guarantee. You could take the money to the bank. Okay? Now, if He's looking for an intercessor, the intercessor can change his mind. So you got Moses, right? So he shared it with Moses. Moses then interceded and prevented an entire nation from just getting wiped out in one breath of God. You got, uh, excuse me, you got Abraham. He said, well, if there's ten, right, can you spare the cities? Absolutely. There weren't even ten. So... The, the purpose of the intercessor, and I, and this is how I am, especially like when I'm dealing with someone that they maybe they don't have faith for healing or they don't understand that they're already healed and they're fighting for their life, I will pray until they're dead. I will release healing until they're dead. Because to me, you just don't stop, right? You don't stop releasing the kingdom reality into their body. And so that's what Josiah is doing. He has a heart for God. He loves God. He wants to get the nation back to hopefully the Lord will, will uh, change his mind. But as we can tell, he's not going to. It's over. They provoked him too far. It's the same thing with like even communities or even relationships. You know, all of us have encountered situations where it's like you warn people, you request specific things, you do whatever you can to preserve the relationship, and eventually... You move on, right? It's done. And uh, and so, pursue peace with all men to the best of your ability. But if we don't deal with our junk, right? If we don't deal with the things, sometimes you can't pursue a relationship with others because they don't want it. All right, now, this is, uh, this is sad to me. Um, I want to go back and read Second uh, Kings twenty-one ten through fifteen really quick to refer back to the provocations which Manasseh had done. The Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of David. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even unto this day. From Egypt. So <clears throat> God's not going to relent. And, uh, and again, it's because the condition of the heart's of the people are far from them. Idolatry had matured to such a point, it was now in the character of the people. And that's really hard to reverse. Now, thank goodness we've got Jesus. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if we didn't, 
Um, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in big time trouble. Because you couldn't, you couldn't break curses. Right. Well, not only that, but we wouldn't have the power for people's right. hearts to not only be transformed, but there's you know, entire societies, entire cultures. We've got the blood of Jesus that's crying out mercy. They didn't have it. Okay. Now, we're going to finish with the price of hubris. Hubris is pride. This is one of the greatest lessons Christians could, could learn, what I'm about to read you right now. This right here um, has helped me probably more than anything uh, which I learned when I was in my 20s. Now, verse 28 of 2 Kings 23. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo. Megiddo. As soon as he saw him, and his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him uh, to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king. Okay, so like always, we need to go to Second Chronicles to get the behind the scenes. So in Second Chronicles 35, we find out what really is going on here. So uh, verse 20 says, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at, at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry, cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, I'm badly wounded. Drina, do you have the Strongs on your phone? If you do, could you look up in verse 22 and tell me if that word God there is Yahweh or Elohim? And then it says, And the king said, Take me away, I'm badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot, brought him to Jerusalem, and he died, and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah and all the singing men and singing women who have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Judah. Behold, they are written in the uh, laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds according to what was written in the law of the Lord in his acts. First and last, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Okay, so background real, real fast. Um, Necho was going to fight the Assyrians. Remember, they had taken over Israel. Josiah was in a treaty with Assyria. He shouldn't have been, but he was. So he was obligated to go out to battle. Necho is like, hey. <laughs> he said, God, Elohim, that's what that word is, commanded me to fight, to uh, hurry, cease opposing Elohim, right? Because he's with me. 
That's crazy. Pharaoh Nico, a pagan, it is Yahweh, isn't it? Elohim. Oh, Elohim. Yes. Okay, now Elohim could be for other gods. But when it says he did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, the author of Chronicles is saying God was speaking. This is the Elohim. This isn't one of the other gods, the sons of God. This is God himself. So the implication here is that a pagan recognized that Josiah's God, Elohim, was telling him to fight Assyria and that Josiah needed to go back home or he was going to get in trouble. Why? Because then he'd be fighting his own God. A pagan recognized the word of the Lord. Josiah, who did all of that work, didn't. And would uh, would Nego have even known his name? Would he have even no. used it? I don't. So this is astounding. Okay, um, a man who does not know God <laughs> recognized that he was being sent by him. So, what could be the deal? Well, the humble hear God. I think possibly Josiah didn't recognize the voice of God because it was spoken out of a pagan, and that's pride. you got to be able to hear God no matter whose voice He's coming through, whether it's someone that knows Him or not. So the lesson is a humble heart will hear God through the most unlikely sources. And the second lesson is this. Beware of error at the height of your life or after great victory. Okay? Because that's when you can think you're invincible or that God's favor is on you and you can just do whatever. you got to hear them. <clears throat> now, I wouldn't say, you know, that, oh, because that's when the enemy attacks. No, no, no. That is aggravating when people say that, you know, well, I just had a victory, so the enemy's attacking me. No. The heart is being tested to see if you're going to remain humble. Right? And uh, so... Don't blame the devil. The biggest threat is actually our own hearts. You know? So ask the Holy Spirit to help you recognize His voice in even the most unlikely sources. Those uh, you don't like, those who don't know God, etc., are typically the sources He will use. (laughs) But if you feel offense, like if you hear something and you get offended, that's probably your clue. Because you need to pause. Like, Hang on a minute. You know, I don't like this person or this person doesn't even know God. What they said kind of irritated me a little bit. Hmm, this might be Holy Spirit. (laughs) Especially if the content of what they're saying has that little ring of truth. It's kind of like, you know, those Taco Bell commercials where you hear the dong. It's like, you know, the latest one is some famous, I'm assuming a sports guy. And he's being honored, you know, and they're, you know, just talking all kinds of stuff about him. And he's walking up to the stage to get his reward. And then the podium goes down and you're dong. And then he like stops and he walks away to go to Taco Bell. That needs to be us, right? You know, it's like you hear that the ring of truth. It's like a dong on the inside, even though you might be a little bit agitated. Hang on. This might be Holy Ghost. To me, guys, that's the ultimate test of humility. 
If you can hear things even from stupid people, or you can hear things from pagans, or you can hear things from people you don't like, if 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 you can do that, you got a humble heart. Okay? So ask Holy Spirit to help you recognize his voice. He'll speak through anyone and anything he so, so chooses. We won't always hear everything he says personally, right? So he uses others to keep us humble, keep us on our toes. But that that lesson right there, because to me, it's like the saddest ending. Like this, this, the next next week's gonna be just as sad. Because we're gonna read about the end of a nation, right? But these are important lessons for us personally, for a, a universal as well as the people of God, but also for nations. Okay. So anyway, let's uh do y'all have anything to add or okay. Alright, well let's pray. And uh Father, we thank you so much for being a good daddy. This is Father's Day, and like every Father's Day, my prayer always starts with, we love you, we wish you happy Father's Day, and we thank you so much for Jesus. He was your idea. You saw that we were without help. You saw that we were born with a sin nature. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't rescue ourselves. Uh, we were enemies of yours, but you didn't make yourself an enemy of us. Instead, you became one of us. And you lived life as a man. You died on that cross for us. And you have saved us. As a dad, you gave up your most prized, and I don't like to use the word possession, but the most prized treasure that you had, and that was your son. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that because of your love for us, you gave him for us. And uh, so we thank you that now we have the privilege. You've given us the privilege to be called the sons and daughters of God. We're part of your family. We thank you for that. Because we know that's the most important thing for you is family. And so we, we thank you for making us a part of yours. And, uh, and Father, we are so grateful for what you did. This morning we're going to give our tithes and offerings to you. And I can't help but thank you, Jesus, for also agreeing to the plan, you're actually called the everlasting father as well because three are one and one are three. And, and so you're a father to us as well and our elder brother. And we thank you so much for your willingness to come to us and Holy Spirit to come live in us. And we give our tithes and offerings this morning as a demonstration of our loyalty to you. We thank you for the ability to prosper because it's a... Uh, an exclamation point on your covenant with us. So we thank you for that ability to collect wealth and to distribute it as you see fit. And so we ask you receive our tithes and offerings this morning as a pledge of allegiance, as kings uh, to king. And uh, help us to know exactly how to use your money to expand your kingdom. And we uh, pray for all the dads under the sound of my voice and in this room and all that are connected to us. We pray, Father, that their day be the best day so far, but also this be the best year so far. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.